0: This red carpet season, enjoy the award-winning entertainment you love with AT&T's Unlimited and More Premium plan. Go to att.com unlimited to learn more.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly. We're taking you inside the year's best contenders for the industry's biggest awards. I'm your host, Shayna Naomi Crockmall, the digital director at EW, and I am joined this week by Pia Sina-Roy, EW's senior writer and our weekly awardist columnist. Hello, Pia. Hi. Kind of a busy day for you. A
2: little busy. Yeah, we're recording this on Tuesday
1: morning. (laughs) Uh, We usually do it a little bit in advance, but we wanted to get, of course, the Oscar nominations into this. So um, if you hear Pia's phone ring, it's because she's waiting to hear from some important people. Otherwise, we're just gonna go right through this. Um, This podcast is part of our comprehensive awards coverage in the magazine online at EW.com. We're gonna talk through snubs, surprises, highs and lows from the Oscar nominations today, finally. And then later in the show, we'll hear from Barry Jenkins who was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for If Beale Street Could Talk. Um, He's gonna talk about making that film. He's gonna talk about uh, the nominee for Best Supporting Actress, the one and only Regina King. He is not going to be put in the difficult position of talking about how he was snubbed for Best Director because I spoke to him last week um, before that happened, but we're gonna talk about it a little bit. Um, And let's get into it. Let's talk about the Oscar nominations. Obviously, you can catch up on a full list of them at EW.com if you haven't seen it, but let's talk about sort of the big pictures. We've got Black Panther uh, became the first comic book movie to get a nomination for the Best Picture category. Um, Although it did not get a nom for either best director or uh, any of the acting categories, but a bunch of technical ones got that. The favorite picked up a lot of nominations. Um, We also saw some other surprises. Um, Where do you want to start, Pia? What were you most surprised to hear this morning?
2: I think uh, just to kick this off, I was really, really happy that Black Panther was, uh, was nominated in Best Picture. I think this is a film that has consistently broken new ground, uh, ground that shouldn't have to be broken in a way. You know, we shouldn't be at this point where we're still talking about, you know, uh, this incredible, massive franchise film that happens to star at all-black cast, helmed by a black director, uh, and yet somehow this is still groundbreaking, but at least it's moving things, hopefully, in the right direction. Uh, I think that hopefully is kicking off a kind of, slew of some really groundbreaking um, nominations the other one that i just was so happy to see alongside the favorite roma was the one that tied the favorite for 10 nominations each of those movies picked up 10 nominations each including best picture um and i just think roma consistently for me is the standout this year because it really when you're looking at what the oscars are supposed to honor the oscars is honoring the best, like the top achievements in film and filmmaking. And when you look at that, for an example, you can't really beat Roma. You know, it it just is this absolutely exquisite masterclass in filmmaking from Alfonso Cuaron. Mm-hmm. It has this stunning performance from a first time like lead mm-hmm. actress who has never acted before. Yalita Paricio, who very rightfully uh, was recognized in the best actress race. And then I have to say, I was also really happy to see Marina de Tavira. Yeah,
1: that was a surprise, but a, such a, a surprise. One, who plays uh, the mother of the family. Exa-
2: she plays um, uh, the employer of Cleo, uh, who Yalita plays. And she also, um, her character is just such a fascinating one because It's really her marriage is crumbling. She has all the family together and how she relies on her housekeeper to get her through this. I I thought this relationship between the two women was fascinating to see. And uh, both of them were fantastic. So Marina in the best supporting actress race was a really um, fun surprise. I think just, I've really enjoyed seeing the journey this film has taken. Um, And I've got to say, I still, I have so much love for the favorite. Um, and the favorite
1: it's... did well. I mean, Ten nominations. all three of the women got nominated. All
2: three. Olivia although, Coleman for
1: Best Actress, Rachel Ice and Emma Stone for
2: Best Supporting. Yes, they'll be competing with each other, yes. which I always think is quite fun, but um, fun for us, probably not so fun for them. I think they tend to have. I I they've, they've had, had fun, fun with it. it so far. They definitely have been supporting each other, which I quite like. So. Yeah, I think uh, I think we've seen some interesting nominations. There's definitely some very notable omissions as well, though. Let's talk about who you thought was missing today. Who's who did
1: you hope to see that wasn't anywhere on this list?
2: I do think that it always surprises me when the Best Picture category can ho- have up to ten nominations. Yeah, and there once are again, eight. We this so I just feel like when you can honor ten, why not honor ten? Mm-hmm. Um. Which know, were
1: what were movies that you would have expected to see? So the eight that were named Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Green Book, Roma, A Star is Born, and Vice. I would have put Can You Ever Forgive Me? Okay, yeah. In there, I think. And obviously, yeah. if Beale Street could talk, I think those would have been my two Yes,
2: ads. I'm really surprised that uh, Beale Street is missing from this list. Mm-hmm. For me, I would have liked just personal picks here. Yeah. It would have been eighth grade. Sure which is just one of my absolute favorite films. I love that film. Year. I feel
1: like, I think we knew it was kind of a long shot, but it was like the long shot you were hoping But for. it's
2: actually the indie, it's yeah. the kind of independent film that normally would actually mm-hmm. inch its way into the Oscar race. You know, it's a first time filmmaker with Bo Burnham uh, and a first time actress, Elsie um, Fisher, who is adorable, mm-hmm. beautiful, very contemporary story, great coming of age tale, and just very endearing. Like, a lot of people likened it to Lady Bird from last year. And I have to agree, like we don't tend to see stories like this. And so mm-hmm. I would have thought it's the kind of thing that would get recognized, mm-hmm. actually. So so it's a long shot this year, but it wouldn't normally be a long shot, yeah. uh, which is which kind of goes to perhaps how strange this year is shaping up in a way. And the other one that w- really was a long shot, and I might've been the only one rooting for this perhaps, was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Because again, when you're looking at, to me, I'm always looking at movies that are just breaking new ground and doing something different mm-hmm. and engaging audiences and doing that. Like. Spider Can't have two verse. comic book movies. Pia. No, Don't get that's true.
1: That's just way too much. Next to one of a popular film category. I mean,
2: you know, <laughs> <laughs> you can hope, I suppose. <laughs> but like Spider Verse was just the way people, the way it resonated with people, the way it like really brought out emotions. I felt them when I was watching it. Couldn't believe that. You know, animation is not a genre. It is a medium, and movies shouldn't be dismissed mm-hmm. from the best picture category because their yeah. animation just um, as you
1: wouldn't say oh Roma's a foreign film right. or Cold War is a foreign film right. and we're not going to nominate that for a best director that has to stay over there. there. I think we've kind of
2: moved past that. Yeah and I think that's where it it would be good to see uh animated films because there are actually some beautiful ones. I was really excited to see Mirai as well nominated this year and if you want a beautiful heartwarming film that is one. Uh, but it's frustrating when these movies aren't considered mm-hmm. uh, more credible because they are animated. And I think filmmakers like the filmmakers of Spider-Verse have definitely shown that you can make very powerful films just in the same way that Ryan Coogler showed. You could make a very powerful film within a superhero tale. Because mm-hmm. so At the end of the day, superhero tales are very reflective of like the human behavior, human existence. And I just think now we're seeing the Academy finally opening its doors, inching its doors inching. open.
1: It was, you know, so our, our colleague Anthony Bresnikan, um pulled some interesting kind of backstory, just as context. So Black Panther is the first superhero, to, first superhero movie to get a Best Picture nomination. And he pointed out that some people, I think, very much wished that the original Superman from 1978 would have gotten one, which it didn't. Neither did Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight in 2008. Um, So it's the first superhero, first comic book movie, although then he pointed out that the Academy issued a statement um, on Tuesday Today, noting that the 1931 comedy Skippy starring Jackie Coogan (laughs) as a rich little boy who ventures into Shantytown was based on a comic strip and received a nomination at the fourth Academy Awards for Outstanding Production, which at the time was the equivalent of what we now call Best Picture. However, I think (laughs) ninety-one years and the difference between a comic strip and a comic book, as Anthony argues, is uh,
2: very different. Yes, I think we've come a long way, and you know, just the comic book, you know, world has exploded. It's a different. It's a different. (laughs) You know, there are generations who have grown up with this stuff since then, and yet never seen their favorite stories even come close to an Oscar Which I think is such a good point. I mean,
1: I think if the Oscars really, and the Academy really wants to think about that longevity and what their future looks like, it's not just a question of diversity, which I think is a very important question they continue Mm -hmm. to really need to tackle. It is a question of storytelling and what qualifies to them as being, you know, sort of an important enough piece of storytelling. And Black Panther was phenomenal. So many technical awards also that it's nominated, although surprisingly not visual effects, A couple of great nominations on the technical side for Black Panther that, again, are Anthony Resnikan, who we work with, called out, and I just want to give a quick shout out to. Ruth Carter for Costume Design. she previously been nominated for Amistad and for Malcolm X. She also worked on Selma, Joss Whedon's Serenity, a bunch of Spike Lee movies. Um, On the production side, production designer Hannah Hannah Beachler and set decorator Jay Hart. Um, Hannah Beechler, it's her first Oscar nomination, the first ever for an African-American woman she's marvel's first ever female production designer um, and she worked on moonlight um beyonce's lemonade which i really mm-hmm. appreciate that anthony is putting all of these in the same sentence moonlight lemonade fruitville station creed um, that is amazing i think the part the fun fact of the black panther technical nominations that i was most surprised by which i didn't know ludwig Gorenson, who uh, was nominated for original score Uh, you is also a collaborator on Childish Gambino's album. So he is simultaneously nominated for three Grammy nominations for his work with um, Donald Glover.
2: And can I just say, this is actually very reflective of what happens when you start opening your doors to filmmakers of color here. You know, because frankly, all these people, like you said, you're looking at these people, their resumes are incredible. And they've been coming up through, you know, working with black talent, like, you know, working with people like Beyonce or or, uh, Childish Gambino, you know, to pave their way in this industry. And finally, now they are getting this recognition. But this is what happens when you open the doors to, like a filmmaker like Ryan Coogler is going to work with people that he is going to know are like very much part of his vision in wanting to bring this very powerful story of black identity within a superhero world. So by bringing this team together, this is what's so great. You know, one, opening the door to one person opens the door to so many other people. That's why it's so important to continue to see this. And I, it just makes me happy, mm-hmm. like looking at all these combinations. Yeah, yeah, I think this is where we're gonna start. The change has to doesn't just come from these big major categories. It actually has to start coming from some of these more technical categories because that's where you see these categories are mainly dominated by white men, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part. and. Now we're finally seeing, you know, doors opening, people coming in, and therefore we will get these different perspectives. Got a long way to go, very long way to go. And a couple of like doing really
1: it. notable snubs, not just Ryan Kugler, obviously, yeah. who for a movie this amazing to have been made, but somehow he doesn't get recognized for it. Yes. it is absurd to me, but also
2: the actors in that film. It completely <laughs> astounds me that, like, see, to me, Michael B. Jordan's Killmonger continues to be one of my favorite performances. And if you actually, if any of you guys go back and just even watch that, I'll try not to spoil it, but that very important climactic <laughs> I think scene. I you can spoil, I mean, it's like, like it's been nice out for about a year now, song, right? It's, it's, yeah, I think you, can... you know, if you, if you do watch the, the very climactic scene between T'Challa and Killmonger, um, you'll know the one. The and, one. And it still blew me away because I actually just rewatched that over the weekend. It, that scene like still made my heart race it's mm-hmm. still it, my breath caught it in makes my you like, nervous. Throat. It, like it does you it gives you chills yeah. and I just thought that was acting that's just I mean it's so powerful so resonant and so unbelievably tragic and I just thought it was gorgeous to see that mm-hmm. in a movie like this and to not have that recognition for Michael B. Jordan who Or chat with Boseman, who I agree You know yeah.
1: certainly has like the more like I'm the hero. He yes. has like a more
2: traditional I
1: think a showy role in some way. T- if it's possible to call any of these roles not showy. But yes. like um, and he, he was amazing.
2: The, I think that and entire mess was incredible. And oh. so I I do feel like that just feels like a you know, to not have Ryan Coogler nominated um specifically for writing and, and directing and to not have the actors it, it kind of takes a, it it should be in those lists but i also think this movie has been out since february and f- perhaps for a lot of voters they knew how powerful the film was mm-hmm. but because they'd probably like already the seen it the phenomenon
1: almost sort of began to outweigh i don't think they mind. like re- somehow the
2: individual performances maybe yeah i think it was more that they just probably didn't revisit it because they probably had already seen it and mm-hmm. in not revisiting it they perhaps it didn't you know, the the performances perhaps weren't at the forefront of their mind, you know, to them, they understand how powerful the film is overall and what it means. And so giving it that recognition, plus like thinking of like the technical categories and, you know, what it achieved in those areas. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, those respective, like this is where, you know, each individual branch Mm -hmm. nominates their own here. Mm -hmm. So like film editors who worked with the film editors of Black Panther, they know how powerful that was. But overall like just perhaps it is that the movie had come out so long ago that it wasn't quite as yeah. current enough to be yeah. in people's minds and that's yeah. kind of a bummer yeah uh, i don't know there's no real science to this yeah. so much of it is just trying to like guess yeah. what's going through the minds of some seven thousand nine hundred academy voters so
1: a couple of the other kind of big snubs we called out on ew.com first man we've talked about this a little bit before Did get some um, technical nominations, but uh, Damon Chazelle, Ryan Gosling, Claire Foy, none of them nominated, especially The Score, which had done well in some other award shows so far, did not get named. Um, I think on the directing side, uh, Bradley Cooper, for *Star Is Born*, I think there was a, a really big question. Like we kept talking about it. Like you know, he got nominated as an actor. Lady Gaga yeah. got, no- got nominated as an actor. It got nominated, of course, for best song. Right. Uh, it's nominated. It's for eight best nominations, Picture, but I like not for the director. Again, can who I is speak to me this? Though, yes.
2: Please. Here's the I get it. There's a lot of, but I and I talked about this a little bit in my director's uh, awardist breakdown last week. But there's been a real, like. There's been a real kind of backlash to him not getting Mm -hmm. this nomination. People are astounded. And I actually have to point to Damien Chazelle here. Mm -hmm. The key thing is, you know, directors nominate other directors for Oscars. Directors are notoriously a very, very discerning group of people. And, you know, the director's branch, if you look at who they're mainly made Mm -hmm. up of, this is very much skewing towards an older male, white, you know audience here or voters
1: so although not on this list the best director list does not include Peter Farrelly
2: no well so the voters yeah like these are people who have been around for a long time and they tend to look at I think you have to earn your place on that list and a first-time filmmaker doesn't -hmm. Doesn't really get to do that. Mm -hmm. They can impress, and by giving this movie eight nominations, they're very this. You know, this the Academy very much acknowledging this is a great first directorial debut.
1: Forward to seeing what he does. We want to see what else
2: you you do. You know, this is we're encouraging you. Keep going. This (laughs) is great. You know, but but. It didn't surprise me that Bradley Cooper didn't get a directing nomination because also this is the fourth iteration Mm -hmm. of a tale that has been told and retold Mm -hmm. in Hollywood, A Star is Born. The fourth remake of this movie, I I do think he does something really great with Mm -hmm. it, but at the same time, it doesn't quite spark the originality conversation that that we go and see with Alfonso Cuarón's Roma.
1: Right, which like plays like like, the most perfect answer to a very basic challenge in, like, a yeah. film school class of, like, make a film about your childhood. Yeah. And and yet is, like, the most intense, amazing version of that exactly. possible.
2: And so I was going back to, like, Damien Chazelle, who Whiplash was his massive breakthrough feature and it scored five oscar nominations but did not score a directing nomination for damien chazelle who was in his 20s at the time and i but those Mm -hmm. five nominations were very much an encouragement he came back with la la land and of course then became the youngest ever director to win that best directing oscar but this is only an. It, it should only be seen as an encouragement overall. Like Bradley Cooper should seek out his next movie and direct that in the same way, and and come and expect to come back again. Yeah. I think that's what they're saying. They've opened the doors to him. They just want to see a bit more. Uh, obviously, again, this is not an exact science. I'm sure there are people who are going to pull out first time filmmakers who did, you know, get in there. But I'm I'm just saying like mm-hmm. when that feels it's right. a fairly. Yeah competitive year and you do have some incredible i mean we've got spike lee in the best director mm-hmm. this spike lee has been working for 35 years at least he, he is one of the most visionary filmmakers in american cinema and this is his first directing Just oscar so nomination ridiculous he he actually received an honorary oscar a few years ago for his lifetime achievements because he had never won yeah. so if you look at that you have to understand how difficult this category is. So for all those people who are so upset that Bradley Cooper is not nominated, don't be okay. discouraged. Yeah. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. <laughs> I and he'll I be fine. expect to see him back real soon. Yeah. But just think of like the other people in this. Yeah. Like I do think Alfonso is the one to beat. Mm-hmm. But quite honestly, I also see for someone like Spike Lee, mm-hmm. how he has not been recognized yet. Mm-hmm. To me, if you're looking at that, Alone, he would be the the clear cut winner. Mm-hmm. But Alfonso does deliver. Mm-hmm. A and real then we've got film.
1: Yorgos Lanthimos, who we directed did. The Favorite. Adam McKay, who directed Vice. We talked to him last week. Check that out on the podcast. And Pavel Pavlikowski, the who, surprise nominee. Yeah, for everyone except <laughs> our colleague Bill Keith, who reminded me that on the very first episode of this phase of the awardist, when we asked him who he thought was the best, I think he was like. Cold War for everything. Yes, he said it was the Polish Star is born, which I think is sort of. It's, I, I I think that almost is not the full description of it. Yeah, but he was. It was like his thing. He was down for for everything. Yeah, he was pretty. <laughs> he was pretty proud of himself today. If you haven't seen Cold War, um, it's great. You should watch it. it it's uh, it. I think he. You know, he won best director at Cannes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's loosely based on his parents' very tumultuous love story. Uh, during the Cold War, it's about a singer from Poland, and um, it's gorgeous. So it's, I think that was an that was definitely a surprise. I think he was one person who uh, I, think, I think I think we he, all expected him, the film, to be nominated for yes, a foreign film. Correct. Um, but interesting and good to see him um, come through there. Two of his previous films he made: Ida in 2015, another black and white, a kind of period film which won uh, Best Foreign Film, was the first Polish film to ever win that. Uh, He also made, in English, My Summer of Love from 2004, which starred none other than a very young Emily Blunt, Um, and it won the BAFTA for Best British Film that year.
2: Which, by the way, can I also say Emily Blunt has this year to not... That that was a... You know, I was rooting for her. Emily Blunt has uh, never received an Oscar nomination, Which if you, I think that's correct. Yeah. And if you look at her body of work, she's absolutely incredible. And what she delivered this year alone was great. Nobody else could have done Mary Poppins. Really. I can't think of anyone. People are mentioning Claire Foy, maybe. Uh, I just think. what. I
1: I I can only say maybe to anyone else because even as great as I thought Emily Blunt was. She was so good as Mary Poppins that I was like, what is even happening? Like, it was still It was shocking.
2: such a surprise like, to see. And the thing is, like, that's what, like, to me, it was quite funny because, you know, for, for those of you who also love The Double Wears Prada, you'll remember this is, this is like the Emily Blunt that stole scenes from Anne Hathaway in The Meryl Double Wears Prada. And Meryl Streep. <laughs> and so, and there's no wonder that, like, people are, are sort of saying, you know, she's kind of the, the next Meryl Streep. I I think I was a little bit disappointed not to at least see her recognized in the acting races. She gave two incredible performances this year, if you also include A Quiet Place. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just think while these aren't necessarily the usual types of movies to get recognized, her performances were so standout um, that I I think she deserved these nominations. However, it's Emily Blunt. She's so adored. And just like Bradley Cooper- She shall be back. I'm very sure of it. So, but I was a bit disappointed. Yeah. um, Yeah. I
1: think those were, those were sort of the biggest surprises. Other than I feel like we should continue to still be surprised and angry is I think probably the right word about how (laughs) no women directors in a year of so many amazing... Female-driven films were nominated. I loved getting that. Um, Can you ever forgive me? Did get some love, yeah, um, both from Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant, mm-hmm. but also for the screenplay. But um, again, a, a director who I, I think easily could have been in this mix. We spent a lot of time last week and probably some of the other weeks before talking about this so i don't know that we
2: need to is that the right word dig back into it we i will so- say though <laughs> yes, yes i will ahead. say for Marielle heller to not be recognized oh. and yet here you know her two lead star stars have nominations and the screenplay she worked off of has a nomination so it's great that the film's gotten recognized yeah. but her not to get recognized once again shows this is again, it goes back to this, this is her second film. So
1: maybe for women, you're gonna have yes. to make three or
2: four, maybe before you can finally maybe it before. might have to be five or six, right? Yeah, like as it took Greta, Greta Gerwig least, a while, like, yeah, because Greta Gerwig actually had uh Greta Gerwig had made quite a few films prior to this where she had co written and co directed, and then finally with Lady Bird, she um. She that was her solo directorial mm-hmm. debut, which was the key def, like difference with that. Um, so yeah, it's and- it
1: only really counts if you do it by yourself. Right. Said every male director ever. <laughs>
3: so um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy.
1: It's, we're not the only ones at EW who are still frustrated by this situation. Uh, one of our critics, Leah Greenblatt, will have a piece up uh, today also about the women who have been snubbed. We pulled together a list of 15 films helmed by women this year that we thought should have gotten more award season love. So if you would like to go back and, and check some of those out, um, go to ew.com and go through that. It's been a good year overall for film. Some other big breakthroughs, groundbreaking moments, we're going to get into that in the issue this week. Um, anything else you want to add in our sort of like wrap up overall?
2: I think, I think it's just sort of, going to be an interesting uh interesting awards ceremony for many reasons we obviously still don't know what's going on with the host situation they haven't revealed that you know they i do think i don't see black panther winning Mm -hmm. you know best picture if if black panther won best picture i think that would just be truly phenomenal but right now it's it's not the front runner in my mind um It's not that I don't want it to be. I so do, but I just don't see it happening. You know, last year Mm -hmm. I was rooting for Get Out to win Best Picture and actually thought it could do it. And I was so disappointed when it didn't. Um, But we have some very interesting contenders here. And, uh, you know, definitely check our ongoing coverage as we're getting more reactions. And I just had a great interview with Spike Lee on um, what this first-time directing nomination means to him. And he was sort of very straightforward about saying he doesn't believe this would have happened if Oscar's so white mm-hmm. hadn't happened changed the conversation it for changed him the to conversation be... and you know he was saying back in 1989 would do the right thing he was like i guess the academy went into that but now with black Klansman, you know clearly they felt this was the movie to to honor them on so i do think it's just interesting there is a shift in conversation overall we are seeing new groundbreakers i think having Yelitsa. Aparicio, who I believe is the first indigenous Mexican actress to be nominated for best actress. um, That's a big step Mm -hmm. for representation. And I keep sort of saying Roma's significance uh, beyond just the kind of Oscar stage here. It's very powerful to have a story about a housekeeper, an indigenous Mexican housekeeper, like working out of Mexico city. it's really powerful to have that story playing out in a year or in a year and a half i suppose where we have you know a political system that has been attacking mexico and yeah. the and has fractured the us mexico relationship and right now we're in the midst of a partial government shutdown over a dispute on the funding of the us mexico border wall yeah so you know looking at all those elements the significance of Roma and what it stands for, even though that's not what Alfonso and everyone has been talking about, you have to look at like what this movie means. Absolutely. And that alone, that, that significance that alone could be something that the Academy as a group of voters may want to elevate, mm-hmm. you know, the power of the story, the power of, you know, uh, people who are overlooked mm-hmm. and perhaps, uh, you know, trying to overcome it's overcoming prejudices mm-hmm. about certain. And people. I think
1: even, even if it, I mean, I think it's going to win a lot of awards, but I even think. if it doesn't win all of them, it is one of those examples where I think the platform it's on, and this is Netflix's first best picture Gosh, nomination. Gosh, we didn't even get into that. It's great. And, yes. and to me, I think the fact that now, I mean, today, this moment, this morning, anyone who was like, Roma, what's Roma? Wait, or why haven't I watched that yet? Right. It is accessible to a huge number of people who are already Netflix subscribers in a way that is just not... I mean, it's equivalent to like Black Panther because Black right. Panther has been out for this long and is out in as many households and you can stream it and watch it wherever you want. Right. But to me, I think the power of those two films yes. being so widely seen yes. beyond just what you might think of or even just the smaller, smaller group of mm-hmm. potential Academy voters is really powerful and the accessibility of it.
2: It's all about Despite the conversation. Despite like such an
1: incredibly rich like artful film, yes, very accessible.
2: That's what I love about it. I think so much of this awards season is about the conversation. Mm-hmm. It's about the films that are in conversation. So even if you're an awards voter, right, and you're going out there and you're talking to people who have nothing to do with awards voting, but that, but everyone's paying attention right now. Everyone's looking at you know if you can access Roma and you're intrigued enough, and you can get it, you know, you're already a Netflix subscriber, so you can just sit down and watch it right there and then. Yeah. That's powerful, because that's just conversation. People are going to continue talking about it. I and feel I think like today what... is
1: almost more of an exciting day in the work that we do, and in sort of in how people talk about <laughs> movies, than the actual day of the awards.
2: You agree? I, I agree, because I think now we get into sort of a month of where, you know, all the people that... You know, I'm sure yeah. this happens to me as well, where they're like, oh, wait, so I heard about this movie. This is nominated, right? OK, I'm going to go check it out. Yeah, like, this, this is, is like where this people start discovery, discovery still of like, yeah. oh,
1: maybe I didn't see that. Or it's almost like the world's best possible argument where people are arguing over which of these great movies is greater. Mm-hmm. And then I think sometimes for me, like the actual awards is a little bit of a letdown because then it's like somehow, you know, this. <laughs> You, I don't get to vote, you don't get to vote, right. this is it, you know, we're in this world, but we're not that part of this world, and then suddenly it's like, oh, this decision has been made.
2: It and... was a little bit anticlimactic, like, everything sort of, you know, gears up for that eventual Best Picture yeah. nomination, <laughs> yeah. and you're sitting there and you're so tense, like, I used to work for a wire service, so we're just poised to like bash I out the like winner that's even just
1: what people are like at an oscars party like people who are right. watching are i think so that tense. is what's
2: great about it still or has the potential
1: to really still be yes. so great about that moment i think then that quite you know when it's just one what does it mean for all of these other very very good Yes, yeah.
2: <laughs> i do think at least this year what we're seeing is a sort of split through uh votes there are different favorites you know mm-hmm. in each category we're seeing you know roma's a favorite in certain categories while green books favorite in other categories and then there's regina king for beale street in a category or glenn close for the wife or christian bale for vice mm-hmm. you know there's so many different movies being represented um as front runners throughout all these different things mm-hmm. i do think that's going to hopefully at least encourage people to tune in and plus i think also just generally with the show mm-hmm. uh right now we don't entirely know what's yeah. going on yeah to not have an announcement of a host or even I mean, if I they're going without one is not weird
1: having one but i guess we'll See,
2: I will say I loved Camille Nangiani and Tracy Ellis for us announcing the Oscar nominations fun. this morning. They were really funny. They're really fun. I'm like, why can we not just have I don't them? know like, I will that say our
1: TV critics, um, TV Kristen Baldwin and also Lynette Rice made a very compelling argument at EW.com about why we don't need a host at all. I think they're, <laughs> they're pretty right. Like, at this point, I think you we probably won't get one. And they like add a musical number. Here are some other things. I think
2: at this stage. Adding a ho, putting a host in now will take the spotlight away from what the Oscars is meant yeah. to be doing, which is actually celebrating movies. I think that was the same argument after Kevin Hart stepped down, and then mm-hmm. they're like, oh no, we should bring him back. And it's like, well, no, because you're putting the spotlight on the wrong person. Yeah. You know, the night is about movies, and quite honestly, The show, I think, would be perhaps a lot snappier if you do just keep it moving faster with, you know, kind of keeping an ensemble of people coming up and doing fun things on stage. There's more opportunities for surprise because it's not just
1: the host plus whoever. Yeah. There's a lot of options. So we'll see. We'll see if that changes. Maybe
2: I'm intrigued if you if this encourages you to tune in more so this year than previous years please let us know because i kind of want to gauge ideas of like are these nominations exciting to you are you interested in this year's show (laughs) i think the academy want to know as well right yeah absolutely when we come back we talk to
1: if beale street could talk director barry jenkins stick around
0: This red carpet season, enjoy the award-winning entertainment you love with AT&T's Unlimited and More Premium plan. Get unlimited data and live TV, plus your choice of one of seven premium add-ons like HBO, Cinemax, or Pandora. Go to att.com unlimited to learn more. After 22 gigabytes per line per month, AT&T may temporarily slow data speeds when the network is busy. Note that video may be limited to standard definition. Choose one premium add-on only. Content, programming, and channels subject to change. Additional usage, speed, limits, and other restrictions apply.
1: Welcome back to The Awardist. Uh, Last week, I spoke to Barry Jenkins on the phone um, before he was snubbed for best director. But after he had won some other accolades and was generous enough to spend some time talking about the screenplay he adapted from James Baldwin's novel, If Beale Street Could Talk. We also talk about the one and only amazing Regina King, um, among other things, his fixation with Nancy Pelosi's coat, other good stuff. You go. Thank you, Barry, for joining us on The Awardist. Uh, So great to have you here. Um, I will say, because I have said this on the podcast already like five times, so I don't feel like it's too weird to say this to you directly, that if Bill Street could talk was hands down my favorite film of
3: 2018. Oh, wow. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. Um,
1: And I I, just putting that out there I'm a fan. I enjoyed it. I saw it. I was at um, TIFF with EW. Um, I believe we had you in our suite that day, playing with puppies, like rolling around on the floor with puppies, and then your film That's premiered right. that night. <laughs>
3: yeah, it Yeah, it was my little moment of then, uh, before the madness.
1: So take me through what's happened since then. What's a moment that stands out since the sort of from the puppies and the premiere in Toronto all the way through to where we are today? What, what is a moment that stands out to you through all of that craziness?
3: Yeah, you know, there's two in particular. Uh, The first one was that night, you know, going from the puppies. I I actually didn't watch um, the world premiere at Toronto. I just have a hard time watching the movie with audiences. Uh, So I went out and got a little Italian dinner and then uh, had a couple glasses of wine and came back. And just uh, meeting the cast backstage right before we went out to the Q&A, everybody was so uh, emotional because, you know, Brian hadn't seen the film, Regina hadn't seen the film, not the finished film, and they were all just... And we got into this circle, and we kind of just said a prayer before we went out for the Q&A, and that, just, that will always stay with me. And then the second was um, our screening at the Apollo, which was our, our U.S. premiere, you know, in the neighborhood the film was made in, um, you know, in the neighborhood that Mr. Baldwin grew up in, um, and with a crowd that lived you know, in the world, these characters inhabit. So that was also just um, just completely uh, breathtaking. Um, it really humbled me.
1: Have you watched this film with an audience at all?
3: Uh, not since the world premiere, no. I mean, I watched it with the audience a few times, uh, you know, during the, the post-process, um, but I haven't. You know, I was the same way with Moonlight, to mm-hmm. be honest. Um, I just, um, I, I can't watch the film and not feel like I'm being like actively judged second to second <laughs> um, and I'm sure that's not exactly what's happening but it's how I feel in my body so you know I'll, I'll you know come in in the back of the room and you know watch certain sequences and things like that but it's just too much so the, the pressure is just it's just too damn much.
1: Whose guidance who watches it who do you watch it with or whose uh view or notes or or feedback when you're putting together sort of Either early passes of the film or towards the end do you most listen to?
3: um I think everyone you know I try to be really, really open. you know we did uh, you know quite a few rounds of focus groups and test screenings uh, with this film, we didn't do that as much um, on the previous film, but you know I try to listen to to everyone you know it's just like you know what I love about award season. Um, in a certain way, or at least the the release of these films, as you know, talking to journalists like yourself, you know, talking to people at like Q and A's, you start to learn things, you know, uh, about the work. You start to understand perspectives because I only have one perspective, and so the more I can engage with people who don't have a direct relation to the work, um, the more I can see the breadth of uh, what's what's possible to take from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, internally um, by editors um, Joy McMillan and, and Matt Sanders, because, you know, of all people, you know, along with James Lacken, the cinematographer, they have seen basically every frame, you know, of the film. And so, you know, a film is a very malleable form, uh, but there is a finite uh, amount of possibilities. And I think those people, the editors and the cinematographer primarily, they know exactly, you know, where the borders, where the barriers are. And so I, I tend to listen to them quite a bit.
1: We've been kind of going category by category on the awards talking about, you know, who are the big contenders, who we should be paying attention to. Obviously, Regina King has emerged as a front runner, if not the the person to beat for supporting actress in film. Um, let's talk about Regina. Regina is amazing, but I want to hear what you have to say about her. How how did you first discover like where did you first see her on screen?
3: Uh, I first saw Regina on screen, you know, as a kid uh, when she was on Two Two Seven. That was my first um, brush with her and her character's name on that show. Her last name was Jenkins, and so I thought, oh, you know, we're 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 connected somehow. And so I remember watching her on Two Two Seven, and then just through the decades, especially the '90s, watching her, you know, the '90s and the early aughts, just watching her play opposite, you know, um, you know Jamie Foxx, watching her play opposite. She would get Junior, just so many of these really big, iconic um, roles that she played, um, and then just somehow understanding that, oh, she doesn't do movies anymore. Um, and then and doing research, I realized, oh, this was where the roles that were going to help her expand uh, her repertoire, that's what the roles were. And so when we started thinking of who the cast as Sharon in this film, um, and knowing that there's going to be a 15 minute stretch where the satellite character, basically the supporting character, basically becomes the center of the film, that we wanted someone who was identifiable in a very uh, emotional way, and I think Regina just has so much depth um, to her person, and she brings those things uh, brings those things to her characters. And yeah, it was one of those things where we we first met via Skype, and I knew right away. I was like, yeah, this is the right woman for the part.
1: Um what is there a moment I mean that whole performance is so strong and carries so much of that is there one moment or one shot or one scene in that film that you feel like you will always think of when you think of Regina and her performance in
3: it Um, You know, it's not the one you think. I I will say, when she's in Puerto Rico and she's uh, acting basically against herself in the mirror, you know, I think that's just, um, you know, one of the most singular moments um, in this film. And it's what I love the most about um, adaptations, which is, you know, how do I synthesize three pages of interior dialogue, interior life, you know, into very concrete sound and imagery. And Regina King and James Laxton and Nicholas Bertel, all coming together to basically translate, transmute the feeling of James Baldwin uh, with a woman putting on and taking off a wig in a mirror. Um, that will always stick out to me. But but the moment that really gets me with Regina in this film is at the end of the sequence the two families as she and Angenou are having a standoff, and Angenou is basically just losing herself completely, and Regina is just the space of both. Stoicism, but also extreme empathy, and I just love because it's a bit of an ad lib. Uh, on the first take, the actors walked out and left their coats on the couch, and so when Regina says, "Get your shit, take your shit with you," <laughs> that is so down home, and it is not scripted. Oh, that that's just amazing! The woman who's fully in her body, fully in the character, and uh, it's one of my favorite moments in the film.
1: That's so great. That scene is—I mean, everything about that scene is so intense. There's so many people packed into this tiny room. They have so many different ways yeah. of approaching this this new challenge in their family life. Um, it was great. I a friend of mine who is-
3: it was it was it was it was, it was terrifying for me to, to shoot that scene. I must say, just because I'm, I'm not used to working with that many actors, and <laughs> yeah. it's an actual you know it's a real living room, so it's not a big space. Um, and figuring out how to give them all the space, you know, to be themselves and be comfortable and and take the same kinds of beats and breaths that we do when there's two people talking, that was a real challenge. You
1: know, I I was thinking just now about how Regina is really an accomplished director in her own right. Was there anything, did you guys talk Mm -hmm. sort of director to director about scenes like that that maybe are more similar to some of what she's done on television, that crowded, busy, fast pace?
3: Well, we we did not, but but what, what I loved about Regina was I didn't have to explain to her um, what I was doing uh, with the camera. You know, I didn't have to explain to her. I know to, I, th- I know. theoretically we should be here right now, but we're actually going to be here. And every time, you know, I think th- if someone wasn't comfortable being behind the camera or couldn't slip in and think the way a director thinks, they might believe, oh, wait a second, but I should be in my coverage now. And um, that's not what we were doing at all. And I think Regina understood that implicitly. And so it was almost like, um, a dialogue uh, that didn't have to take place verbally, mm. and the biggest example of that was when we got to the Dominican Republic to shoot her scene in the in the mirror. I did not tell her beforehand we were going to film the scene that way, um, but once we got there and we blocked it out, and I told her there's only going to be two camera positions, um, she understood it exactly. She understood it exactly.
1: It was great to watch how she used her acceptance speech at the Globes to really make such a powerful pledge about using her own power and what that was going to look like and her commitment to hiring. Is that, I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. just over the course of this year, like how, as a director, has your thinking... Evolved. Not to say that you're not already hiring a diverse crew and making these movies that are telling very specific Mm -hmm. and and underserved stories, but I'm just wondering, how do you continue to question sort of how you approach things as a a person who's running a very large enterprise in addition to making a creative work?
3: Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me has been to really take uh, stock and ownership over the notion of cause and effect. Um, Because it's easy to to assume that so many of these things, these problems, these inequities that we find ourselves in, that they have just somehow magically been allowed to proliferate. But Mm -hmm. I think what Regina's speech was about was this idea of cause and effect. You know, if we want to affect change, then let's be the cause that brings about that change. By which she means, yes, I'm going to make a pledge to hire uh, with equal parity amongst genders um, going forward on things I produce. You know, I think in that way, over the past year... I've 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 been disabused of the notion that I can simply make decisions um, without considering uh, these very real issues, because I think when you do, you sort of absolve yourself of your role in the cause and effect dynamic, mm-hmm. you know, how these inequities are allowed to persist. I think that's exactly what Regina's speech was about.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about the screenplay a little bit. Congratulations on you won it, Critics Choice. You, you've won in some other places and, uh, you know, more nominations, I think, to come. Um. One question a friend of mine actually raised about sort of adapting such a, a book that is dealing with so many different layers of of question between these characters is um, whether the question of class or in particular colorism between the two families seems to have been something that was a little bit more mm-hmm. prominent in the book's narrative than made it to screen. Was that, um, tell me sort of like, was that a function of casting? Was that a function of making a decision of like how many different threads of that
3: to hold it once no that was a function of casting the only thread that the writer decided and i'm, I'm speaking of myself in, in two brains the writer slash director sure the only thread that the writer uh decided um that we would not bring over from the book into the film was this idea of really showing tish and fanny as children mm. you know the book is nonlinear linear and the film is not linear as well and if i like to go that far back, even though there's some very rich uh, terrain in the novel to be mined, that that would be just a bit too much for mm-hmm. the audience to uh, uh, keep hold of, you know, in this two-hour watch versus a 20-hour read. Uh, the colorism dynamic, though, was something that I did want to hold on to. But unfortunately, uh, once Stephon James uh, came in and basically took this role, mm-hmm. basically took this role, um, it was one of those things where I think we still... Um, have it in a certain way, um, you know, with Michael Beach and Lou Ellis
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, being tich- uh, being Fonny's parents, and so then his sisters are a little bit, mm-hmm. um, uh, lighter skinned than he is, again, speaking directly to the idea of colorism, um, but instead this idea, um, of class, uh, became more the thing that ruled the day, so we tried to do it in very, in, in other ways. Um, mm-hmm. for example, you know, just about everyone on Tisha's side of the family, the women in particular, they don't perm their hair. Mm. Um, and, and when Anjanew Ellis and Ebony and Dominique walk in the room, the two young women who play Bonnie sisters, they all have permed hair and, you know, and their dresses. Mrs. Mrs. Hunt is wearing <laughs> these white gloves. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like we tried to, so in other ways, sort of key the audience into those things. Um, and, yeah, it's um, it's one of those things where you try to throw the whole kitchen sink in, but... You also have to have a fidelity to the film that you're making. And once we cast stuff on, that element became a little bit softer.
1: I read that you encouraged everyone, like cast or crew or whomever, to to not just read the book but to have the book with them, and that somehow, I guess it hadn't occurred to me that that might be something that wouldn't people have adapted, they're actually really resistant to. How, how did that play out for you? Were there <laughs> moments where people sort of went back to the book and said, oh, but here, this is the part I'm trying to evoke with this? Or cause there's, there's really strikingly there, there, little there dialogue were, there, to work yeah, with there, there, there
3: in the were, film. There were a few times, yes, where people would point out things uh, that were in the book. And, you know, and I always relied on the Mahershala Ali principle, which is in Moonlight, there are scenes Mahershala filmed that are not in the film. And he said they're not in the movie, but they're in the performance. And Mm so I felt like there were passages in the book, especially because, again, so much of the book, the narrative itself is very simple. That's the way Mr. Baldwin builds it through interior voice that makes it so rich and nuanced and complex. Mm -hmm. And so I was very uh, open with the, the cast and crew that. If you wanted to arrive at a deeper understanding of the character or the scenario, you were more than welcome to reference certain things um, in the book because it's so interior, um, it's almost impossible to show those things. And, Mm -hmm. And film cinema is essentially showing um and, and, and less telling. And so yeah, I was I was very encouraging of that and sometimes it came back to bite me in the ass because, you know, there would be moments where I was making choices that Mr. Baldwin didn't make and it'd be like, Oh, but Baldwin did it this way I know, yes, but we are making the film now, you know, we're not translating uh the novel. Um but by and large it was um an extremely uh useful uh useful thing.
1: I love how much this story and the way that you frame the story becomes so much just about like every single character and how they will help protect this love story, right? Like that's so much the center of it mm-hmm. that in every single scene, and I think it's why I felt so strongly about it and it affected me so much is like the most like the most important thing, you know, as if it is the most precious Possible possession any of us could have is these two young people and how they are in love and all of the threats to that. Was there something that influenced for you centering that kind of love? I don't think that was so dissimilar from Moonlight, where you know it's a a boy who you know you want him to be able to become a happy, loving you know adult man. But Mm
0: -hmm.
1: is there Mm -hmm. like when you think about your like what work or film or TV influenced? Centering love at the middle of a story. What do you think of?
3: I, I think it's just aspirational. I think making, creating any kind of art is an aspirational act. You know, you're taking something that, that does not exist and bringing it into the world. But I think in doing so, you're sort of bringing this idea of what you hope the world can be. And so you're right. Throughout the course of Bill Street, not even amongst Tish and Fonny, just all over, you see people just doing whatever they can to protect other people you know when tish and Fani are encountered by this cop who's maybe the only truly evil person in the (laughs) narrative um you see this italian grocery lady come out Mm -hmm. and protect him you know um for for no reason other than human decency and even you know in uh, a more sobering way when sharon goes to puerto rico she sits down with uh pietro pedro pascal and one of the things he says to her is, look, she's been through hell, lady, and I don't want to put her through any more shit. Mm-hmm. You know, Again, it's not an attack on Sharon. It's not an attack on Bonnie. It's just, I just need to do whatever I can to protect this young, this young woman because she's already been through hell. And so I think in that way, um, it's something that was very present in the novel, and I think all the actors honest that as well, even the way Regina and Emily Rios, who plays Victoria Rogers, the one who's been assaulted, even the way they play that scene, in a certain way they're both being very delicate with one another until the trauma is so overwhelming that they both just have to uh, break in a certain way.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I love how you have so many people in this film who are in it for like a scene, as you were just saying, or or two. Mm -hmm. I, I assume some of that was the function of Moonlight and moonlight's success that you were able to have some amazing people or like diego Luna, who were like sure i'll just drop into a couple of scenes in this um how was there anything like what was the biggest surprise in there of people who were you know eager and willing and able to kind of make things happen for a relatively small amount of screen time? yeah you, you
3: know i i would say diego was the biggest surprise to me you know diego was someone who i've always admired you know the first Film I remember seeing at a film festival was Ito Mama. Uh, Time end. I drove mm-hmm. down to Fort Lauderdale from Tallahassee where I was going to college, and uh, myself and James Laxon actually went to this film festival, Fort Lauderdale Film Festival, and and, and saw Ito And so when I wrote that character, you know, I just thought, you know, who is the perfect person for this? It was Diego Luna. I was like, but he would never do this, right? <laughs> and yeah, I think in a post Moonlight universe, the casting director was like, why wouldn't he? And so <laughs> and so we sent him. I wrote him a letter, and he very quickly said. Um, and now it helped that he was going to be in New York um, working on something else. And he was like, yeah, of course, I, I would love to work with you, man. I'm a big fan of Moonlight. And so and so we got him. And then in other ways, you know, Pedro Pascal is the biggest Baldwin fan in the world. He and Ed are yeah. you know, the biggest Baldwin fans in the world. So it wasn't about me. It was about <laughs> this is the first big screen adaptation of James Baldwin. I've got to be a part of it. So I think in a lot of ways, the stars... I'm um, kind of aligned. I wish I could take credit for it, um, but I cannot. It's all Jimmy. It's
1: all <laughs> Jimmy. Um, speaking of trying to manifest casting, I feel like I can't let you go without talking about Sally Field. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know, this is one of those things. I was it was over Christmas break, and uh, I was hanging out with some friends and smoking and the band. It just happened to be on, and it had just slipped. Um, slipped my mind that she uh, is in that film and is like awesome in that film and uh, I remember I followed her on Twitter because she had this amazing tweet this just amazing tweet uh, it was uh, it was about politics and I'll just leave it at that it was an amazing tweet and I was like you know what I like the Sally Phil and so I started <laughs> following her and yeah it was, it was shocking to know that she saw My Little Smokey in the bandit tweet um, you know look I, I'm going to do a lot of things over the course of my career and right now I think because I always feel like you know at any moment's notice this could all come crashing down I've just got to do all these things that I'm that I feel like a super passion. I wanted to make a, a movie about where I'm from and that was Moonlight. I wanted to bring James Baldwin to the big screen and that was A Bliss Could Talk. And I want to speak to the American condition through the prism of slavery and that's gonna be the Underground Railroad. But I also like comedies, you know, and I like sci-fi. And I, and I also love this, um, this, this idea of Hollywood, um, Hollywood royalty in a certain way, but I don't mean that in the sense of like kings and queens just people who've had really amazing careers and have done so much varied and wonderful work and are now just there. And so they're not in it for the success or the money or the thing. They just wanna make really interesting things. And I feel like Sally Field uh, is one of those people. So I would love to work with her someday. Is there
1: anyone else
3: on that list you wanna throw out into the universe? No, if so you don't <laughs> get me in trouble, I'm, I'm just leaving it at Sally Field for now. <laughs>
1: um, okay, and then, I just feel like we have to talk about...
3: You, you your... know, you know I, I will say, I, I will say, I ran, I ran into uh, Kirsten Davis from uh, Section of the City. Okay. She is amazing. She is amazing, and she and Sally Field kind of favor one another a little oh. bit. Oh! put that into the universe. Just okay. Just put that into the universe.
1: A little mother-daughter, <laughs> a little... I mean, I feel like you've got a pretty good track record so far, putting into the universe and getting to actually make it, so... Let's let's keep that
3: going. Put that into the universe.
1: <laughs> what exactly are you trying to manifest with Nancy Pelosi's coat?
3: Oh my goodness! <laughs> I just had a very visceral reaction to uh, to Miss Pelosi and her badass coat. You know, so much of what we do right now is tied to images. You know, people don't read as much as they used to. Some people listen to podcasts, but not nearly as many people listen to the radio now as they do uh, watch things, whether on our laptops, our phones, or on our televisions. And so to see that image, you know, such, I felt like a simple, concrete um, and powerful image, and even, if, even if it was haphazard, even if she just grabbed it out of her closet, it still it was very clear. You could see, even without sound, just the study and contrast between um, the way she presented herself and the way others are presenting uh themselves in that environment and i just thought it was so badass and i'm riding a lot of underground railroad right now and when i procrastinate i make sweatshirts and so that was (laughs) that was the 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 confluence of factors that that led to the the pelosi sweatshirt
1: amazing i think i was managing to follow just the right group of people so it was like you and the Fug girls and whoever else it was who was just like obsessed with figuring out where that coat came from and i was like what is happening Mm -hmm. on my twitter feed right now this is the best diversion and the best obsession to just somehow bring into everything that's happening in Washington. Um, okay, last yeah, it's,
3: it's 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 my it's my nodding it's my nodding hill threat throughout <laughs> the year. Basically, it became Pelosi sweatshirt. Actually, no, it was like this time last year, nodding nodding hill thing happened. So, so I'm two for two top of the year with ridiculous Twitter posts. Once Twitter a year, stuff.
1: your your annual viral Twitter obsession.
3: Um, Exactly.
1: Okay, one last question for you. I feel like, I don't know if this will be easy or hard, because I feel like you are a really magnificent champion of other people's work um, on social media. Like, you're, you know, you're constantly calling out other directors or other people who you've worked with or whose work you admire. But we've been asking pretty much all the guests we've had on this podcast to talk about who is someone else in your category. So I guess in your case, either an adopted screenplay or a director, um, who... You know, I think we're that challenge that we're in in the middle of award season is people who love great film, but also it becomes such a campaign, becomes such a sort of like business of trying to get this other accolade. But setting aside campaigning for your own work, who is someone in one of your own categories as a peer who you would, uh, without question, go out and campaign for, for them to win? Um, and I feel like I should tell you, oh, um, although no good. pressure on this, Adam yeah. McKay told me that he would campaign for you.
3: Oh, that's that's very kind of him, but uh, but, but but I got I've got to go a different way. I can't per- reciprocate. Um, uh, I, I I would I would campaign for Chloe Zhao. You know, I think that the writer is uh, a masterpiece, full stop. Just an absolute masterpiece. And um, I don't know why and for what reasons or under what circumstances, but it seems to have um, dipped uh, below the radar. Um, and I think it's a shame because it says so much about um, America. Uh, right now, both the America uh, of the past and the America of the future in a certain way. Um, especially, you know, talking about our conversation about Bill Street earlier, that started off about colorism and ended up being about class, thinking in the same way. Um, so much of what we're talking about in America right now is captured in the writer through the prism uh, of class and the idea of the fading uh, American dream, the possibility of realizing that. And Chloe just does all those things so delicately, so nuanced, so subtly uh, in that film. And so she would be, I would ride for Chloe Zhao in the Rider. She <laughs>
1: Thank you so much to Barry Jenkins for joining us and to all of you for listening. Uh, We've also talked this season with some other nominees you can go back and listen to. Uh, Vice writer-director Adam McKay, Can You Ever Forgive Me's Best Supporting Actor nominee Richard E. Grant, and the amazing director Marielle Heller, um, and a bunch of other folks. Check out our list of great films directed by women that you can still go watch for yourself even if the Academy did not choose in any way to honor them. That's at EW.com. Uh, and thanks for joining us for the awardist. We've got more to come still. We know the nominees, uh, but the Oscars are still on their way. The Screen Actors, Screen Actors Guild Awards are next Sunday. EW has a very fancy party the night before that we'll be at, plus um, a live show beforehand along with people before the awards themselves. We'll have coverage of the awards at EW.com. And we're in complete countdown mode. Um, special issue of the magazine comes out um, this week. Uh, you'll be able to see some of it tomorrow, Wednesday, online. It's a pretty exciting cover. That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, if you Such like, a good show. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> we're cool, so excited. I, I would tell you more, but I literally can't. Um, if you are hearing this after Wednesday morning, hopefully you will have already seen it. But if not, set your alarms. Uh, If you are enjoying The Awardist, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you're listening. Um, Thank you, as always, for joining us. Thank you, Pia, for making time on a very busy day. And thank you to everyone for listening. This is Entertainment Weekly, The Awardist, and we will talk to you next week.